Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and our guest today is debut author Ashley C. Ford. Her memoir, Somebody's Daughter, was an instant New York Times bestseller. You may also know Ashley as the host of the Chronicles of Now podcast and the host of HBO's companion podcast, Lovecraft Country Radio. And you might know her from her writing at Refinery29 and BuzzFeed, among many other places. Honestly, that intro barely scratches the surface on all the places you can find Ashley's incredible work. Today, we talk about therapy, taking up space, and writing about family. The Stacks Book Club pick for June is The Undying, A Meditation on Modern Illness by Anne Boyer. We'll be discussing the book on the show on Wednesday, June 30th with Michael Denzel Smith. If you love this podcast and want an easy way to show your support, please join the Stacks Pack community on Patreon. You contribute monthly and earn perks like our virtual book club, shoutouts on the show, and discounts on merch. It's only $5 a month, and I would not be able to make this show if not for the generosity of the Stacks Pack. If you're interested in being a part of this incredible group of humans, head to patreon.com slash the stacks. Thank you to our newest members of the Stacks Pack. Gabrielle Borke, Nicole C., Megan Troud, Elizabeth Hill, Jennifer Mellon, Shayna Albertson, Drea Burns, Lily, Greer Millard, and Jamie Attenberg. Thank you for making the show possible. Okay, now it's time for you all to get to know the brilliant and wonderful Ashley C. Ford. Okay, everybody, I am here today with Ashley C. Ford. Her debut memoir book is called Somebody's Daughter. It's your debut book and your debut memoir, right? Both things are true. Yes, both (laughs) at the same time. Ashley, welcome to the Stacks. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you today. I'm really excited to talk with you. So it's an excitement fest over here. We always sort of start with in about 30 seconds or so, will you tell us about the book? Absolutely. My book is the story of my girlhood. It's the story of sort of coming online and realizing that I'm a person. Um, Having that realization in certain ways stripped away due to familial dynamics um, between me and my parents, also between me and my educators and between me and my body. And it's about my relationship with my father who was incarcerated when I was a few months old and was not released until I was almost 30. The book is so good. 
which, you know, I don't have to tell you, you wrote it, you know, I, one of the things that I was really struck by, which I want to talk about in detail, but before we get there is, is the complexity of this book. It's not long, but it's very complex. We're talking about human nature and relationships and family in a way that is really it's really well done and it's not something that I've seen done before, even though I think a lot of people try to do what you did. So before we get into that part, I'm very curious to know how long did it take you to get ready to tell this story in this way? Like how did you start and how long have you actually been act or how long did it take you to actively write the book versus you kind of attempting maybe to write the book? It has that kind of vibe of like, I'm not ready. Okay. I'm ready. Like I could just get that. Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, it took 10 years. Wow. It took almost exactly 10 years from the sort of core themes, um, of the story being written as an essay for a nonfiction creative writing class when I was in college Hmm. to it being the book that's in front of you today. Um, in those 10 years, I mean, of course there was a matter of trying to, have my skill as a writer match my ambition for the book and for the story. Uh, but there was also quite a bit of having to work on myself. Mm. Uh, there was a lot of therapy in those 10 years, a lot of different kinds of therapy, consistent therapy, um, at times some less consistent therapy, <laughs> which also coincided with some less consistent writing. Mm. Um, yeah, it's been a journey and it's been a, a worthy journey. I'm, I'm so happy with how this book turned out. I'm so happy with what my editor and I were able to do with the um, what I called the Franken book that mm. I initially handed her. Um, yeah, it's been good. I love that. I, I'm so curious about the therapy aspect because I've heard you talk about that before um, throughout your book tour and also on another podcast, I believe. And I'm without telling us personal information about your therapy, I'm, that's not what I'm asking. I'm curious how therapy freed you up to write, like what that feeling or what that process is sort of like without getting too personal, if that's a, an okay question. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, therapy for most people and definitely for me is not necessarily about feeling differently as much as it is about being able to identify and express what you feel. Mm. Because of the way I was raised and the kind of environment I was raised in, especially when it came to conversations or lack thereof about emotions, I was not in touch with many of my emotions. Mm. There were quite a few of them that I actively tried to avoid, whether they were coded as good or bad emotions, which now I know there are no such things <laughs> or good or bad emotions. Um, but I definitely coded them that way and not on my own. That's a societal thing. That's a, that's a community thing. Right. And uh, in order to write the truth, in order to hit that goal that I was trying to meet, I had to be able to talk about all of my emotions. I had to be able to describe disappointment and frustration and the unique elements of it that come along with the helplessness of childhood. And in order to do all that, 
I had to have suddenly learned to have respect and love for my childhood self and their emotions. I couldn't look back and say to myself, you know, well, you don't want to write about this time that you got whooped or you got hurt because you were kind of being an asshole or you were being mouthy or you were being a jerk. And I had to learn how to tell myself like, yeah, you were being a jerk. You were also being a child. Mm -hmm. You were being a child. Mm -hmm. And the reaction to your jerkiness should have been an attempt to teach um, and not only correct or put an end to a certain kind of behavior or to relegate you emotionally to corners where you felt alone when you were not and had not ever been alone in the experience of that emotion. So being able to talk about what I was feeling, being able to describe what I was feeling required the recognition that I was feeling that way. And I was resistant. I was really resistant to recognizing those feelings, but I'm better for it. The book was better for it and I'm a better person because of it. Thank you so much for talking about that. I think, you know, I talk to so many authors and so often I think that therapy is a part of their journey as a writer, but they don't ever talk about it publicly. So I'm really grateful for you for sharing that because I've always been curious sort of how that plays into the process for for artists, specifically writers. Um, one of the things I talked about earlier was the complexity in this book and and your relationship with your with your father and also your mother and your grandmother and yourself and the people around you. And I don't know what the question is. I was really grappling with this, like when I was working on this, I was like, well, how do I ask this question? So you might have to sort of do a little bit of heavy lifting here, which is not my ideal, but you're a pro, so I feel like you can help. I'm curious about the complex nature of loving people, because that's what kept coming back to me as I read your book, as I thought about it. I've seen so many people in memoir kind of talk about people in their families or in their lives who are who are both good and bad, as we all are, who do things that are both good and bad, who um, treat us in ways that are both, you know, good or good and bad, if you will. And I don't know, how did you approach writing to the complexity of yourself and the people in your lives? Well, one of the things that is true about emotions, feelings, what we call feelings, um, feelings that are really verbs in a lot of cases, Mm -hmm. um, like love, is that you have to come up with your own definition of what love is to you, what it means to you. And in order to do that, you have to start with where you are. You have to start with being able to identify your current definition of love, what it looks like, what it feels like, um, how it shows up, all of those things. And everybody's going to have a different definition for love. Absolutely everybody. Because everybody has their own unique human experience. So whenever you're talking to another person and the two of you are talking about love, it is worth it to ask how they define it so that you can have a more clear context of what kind of conversation you're having right now. Hmm. Because I promise there are going to be things that they think of as love that you don't and vice versa. Hmm. In order to write about love the way I did, I had to be honest with myself about what I believe about love. 
Do I believe that some people don't deserve it or should not have it? No, not really. I don't think that I can make that choice for anybody else. I don't think I get to tell a mother whose son is imprisoned for something horrific that, you know, if you were a good person, you wouldn't love him anymore. Your love for him would be gone. We don't expect that right. from mothers. And I don't know why we would expect that from children <laughs> right. or spouses or friends or anybody else, depending on their definition of love. Um, I also know that my definition of love includes accountability and it includes honesty, which means that loving you doesn't mean that I think you should get away with the wrong that you do or the harm that you cause. It just means I can love you through it. Mm. loving you doesn't mean that I'm okay with what you've done or who you've been to someone else. All it means is that at the end of the day, I still think you're a person who is Mm. worthy of love and I can decide how the love I feel for you expresses itself. That might not be with my presence. (laughs) It might be with my presence. It's all very specific, and I think it's um, I think it's sad that we try to paint love with a wide brush or generalize it or police it. Mm-hmm. It's just never going to work. It's never going to work for you, never going to work for me, and never going to work for anybody else. Because the truth of the matter is, what you need to believe most of all is that you deserve love. Right. And that you deserve to be loved no matter what you do. Right. Or no matter what you've said or who you've been before. That you can be the worst person in the whole world and somebody can still love you. You don't get to decide that. And you don't get to decide who they are or what that means because they love you. That's for them. They might not be loving you well. You get to decide (laughs) that. Yeah. But you don't get to decide whether or not the love exists. And so I wanted to write about love and reality. And love and reality exists no matter what we think should or shouldn't be. Right. I love what you said about, you know, we're, we don't get to decide if we're deserving of love, like that we are and that that's not up to us. Because I think something that, at least for me personally, that I always run up against is feeling like I don't deserve something that has been offered to me or that has been presented to me and feeling like, oh, I'm not worthy, but that's not really up to me. What's up to me is to say whether or not I want to take that offer, right? Like whether or not it's offered to me, like there might be people who are more deserving in my opinion, but that's not really the conversation at hand. And I think so often you know, I think at least, you know, I can only speak to my experience as a black woman. I think so often I'm taught, we're taught that we, that, that some, we should pass the mic, you know, that like, if we get this opportunity, we should pass it on. And it's like, well, what about my opportunities? And that's something that I'm currently working on. And hearing you say that in that way really just sort of made it resonate because it's, it's a bigger picture of also that self-love. Like I deserve to love Mm -hmm. myself and be proud of myself and feel, you know, all of those things. Um, 
Yes. Also, it benefits the status quo for us to think of ourselves that way. Yeah. And for us to think of our lives that way. The people who are always trying to give more, give up more, get out of the way, make room, make space are often the people who actually should be taking up more space. Right. Right. (laughs) Should be asking for more. Right. uh, Deserve more than they realize. It is especially for Black women. Um, I would say, and really so many women of color in this country, but, you know, my experience is is as a Black woman, so I'm going to just speak to that. Everything that I learned in my early adulthood and late adolescence was essentially pointing me toward maintaining the status quo. Hmm. And maintaining the status quo, honestly as a means to continually uplift the people who were already in power. Right. Everybody liked how well I spoke until I started speaking about what they were up to Mm. and what I saw they were up to. Hmm. And I think that for a while, I thought that that was me, that I was a problem, that I wasn't saying it the right way that I wasn't waiting my turn or something of that nature. And, you know, um, it took me a little bit of time uh, to realize that, no, these people don't want to hear from me because it makes them uncomfortable. And am I willing for the rest of my life to bear the majority of discomfort so that these people don't have to experience a minute version of it. And the answer I came up with was hell no. (laughs) Hell no. Right. Not in a million years. Not in a million. I refuse. I refuse to carry baggage just because somebody handed it to me. Did you have people in your life professionally, I guess, who, who helped you to get there? Like, were there people that you were, cause I think of you a lot as someone who not exactly, but I think of you as someone who sort of invented the internet as I know it now, you know, like you were sort of that, <laughs> that group of people of that group of black people specifically who were building relationships and community through social media in a way that was, I mean, I know that I, there are times I remember being like, Oh my God, Ashley Ford is so incredible. Like I want to be friends with her because I see that she's friends with these other people that I respect on the internet. Like that's how I found you through Twitter. Yeah. And so I'm wondering like how, if at all, that those experiences of sort of being a pioneer for creatives, because also what you all were able to do was get jobs from like blogs and shit. Like you guys were able to create yeah. a space at the table that was not there, that would not have been there if not for this sort of organic community writing creative critical mass of brilliance I don't even know what to call it you know but it was like this really incredible time on the internet so I'm wondering how you figured out to take up space and and who are the people that helped you with that probably the person who most helped me realize um that it was not just okay but necessary for me to take up space um, was Roxanne Gay, mm. who was my mentor, it was and is my mentor, is one of the most generous, kind, compassionate, encouraging people I've ever had the pleasure of knowing mm. in my entire life. And I was a person who not only sort of was, was happy with scraps in a lot of cases, I would almost 
skewed the, the opportunities to have more than scraps because I felt like I wasn't there yet right. or I wasn't ready yet or no one else had affirmed for me that that was like the next thing I should do or that I should even just try mm. to do it. And every time I reached out to Roxanne with some opportunity, I was feeling kind of like I'm excited about it. It's big, but I, I don't know if I'm ready. I've only done this or I've only done that. She would essentially just be like, shut up and do it, you know, <laughs> like shut up and give it a shot. Like she was really the person who encouraged me to stop saying no to myself because I expected that somebody else was about to say no to me. Hmm. Um, and that was huge. She was the person who taught me that it's okay to get what I want, mm. that it's okay to get what I like, that it's okay to say no to things that I would like to do because I don't feel like the people who are in charge or making the plan or involved are respectful enough. Hmm. That's okay. I can say, you know, I don't like the way this email is addressed to me. You know, I don't like the way this person spoke to my assistant. Hmm. I tell you, if somebody speaks to my assistant left, I will not only will I never work about with you again, won't think about working with you again. I'll talk about you. Right. I'll tell everybody <laughs> that that's how you treat people. I absolutely will. Good. And you should. You know? And I should. And and a lot of that power and a lot of that um, demanding of respect in professional situations absolutely comes from watching and reading and interacting with these Black women on the internet um, when I was just a baby writer, when I was just getting started, when I was just trying to figure out if I even had a, a place in this world. Um, there were these women saying, make your place, yeah. take your place. Ugh. And I'm so glad I did. My life is much better for taking that leap. I'm so glad you did too. I heard you on the long form podcast a few years ago, and you talked about Roxanne Gay, and you talked about money in a way. And this is when I was just starting this podcast, and I remember thinking, like, "Wow, this is exactly what I needed to hear because I didn't know." And it was something that like gave me permission to figure it out, and also just to think differently about what I what I want out of this space. So thank you for that, and I guess also thank you, Roxanne Gay, for that to you. Um, yeah, just to circle back to the book because I know I already got off topic, but. It's a podcast. That's what we do okay. here. And this is more yeah. interesting to me. And I feel like people can hear you talk about the book in a million places, but they can't always hear you talk about the stuff that is inside the book in a different way. Um, but Absolutely. speaking of other sort of important Black women, we can't talk about this book and not mention Oprah because mm. I am just... I mean, so this book is published by Flatiron, but it's an Oprah book. So on the binding, it says an Oprah book. And I would love for you to explain to folks what the difference between that is and being an Oprah book club pick for people who don't exactly understand how that publishing moment works. As I understand it, and I could be wrong. <laughs> okay. Like, I'm just going to be, I could totally be wrong. <laughs> but as I understand it, Oprah's book club books are published outside of her imprint. And there are books that she just comes across and reads. Um, you know, people send her a lot of books and she reads them. She really likes something, something really touches her. Boom, it's an Oprah book. She reaches out to the publisher. She reaches out to the author. There's a whole thing right. when a book is selected as an Oprah book um, or an Oprah book club book. For her imprint, 
an Oprah book, Oprah reads the proposal of the book, like before the book is even bought. She reads it. Um, the person who runs her imprint reads it. They send it to her. She reads it and essentially says, yes, I want to help publish this book or no, thank you. She has published very few books. I think I might be the fourth under an Oprah book imprint um, that is not like co-authored or authored by her. Right, 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 of course. <laughs> um, I, I believe it's uh, the fourth one. And I mean, the, I, the process is interesting because there's, you are not guaranteed when you go with an Oprah book imprint that Oprah herself is going to really interact with the book right. or interact with the story. Act Like she did her job. She helps you publish it, right? Like that, that's the job. Um, but if she chooses to, <laughs> she can. And I have been very, very lucky um, in this instance that she really chose to get behind my book and to be very supportive of it. it it's been wild so I, I think that's the only difference one is like she published it right. on her imprint um so it's not necessarily part of her her um book club it's just like an oprah book and then the other one is she read it out in the world mm. and then decided it was going to be um part of her book club is there i mean this is your first book so I, there might not be a difference for you but i'm wondering what it's like knowing that your book is going into the world with oprah's stamp of approval and knowing that her audience is there for it like it's wild okay <laughs> that's like, what i, I don't thought. even know how like it's so wild it's it's wonderful and it's amazing and it, it's really cool to see it reach people who you never would have been able to reach who you never would have had contact with right. who maybe wouldn't have had contact with any of the publications or you know the podcasts or the radio hours that you're doing uh publicity calls and interviews with like those people there are people who it's like just whatever oprah suggests right. that's what i get to read and so that's amazing to have that happen um, on a more personal level. It's so amazing to know that, first of all, this book started being written the same year that she launched OWN. Wow. Um, her network. And I was so excited about the launch of OWN because, you know, I, I loved me some Oprah. Same, same, I'm same. an older millennial, like very, I'm like, I want to watch the interviews. I want to watch behind the mm -hmm. scenes. I want to watch everything. I went to a taping and I, and she oh made gosh. eye contact with me and said like, right. Cause I was like, yeah. <gasps> and she was like, right. And I was like, oh my God. And they moved me to the front row and I've never been the same again. And I just recently con married the shirt I was wearing because I had not worn it since 2010. But oh I was literally God! like, Oprah acknowledged me in this green shirt. It was kind of like the color you're wearing. I was like, this is my new power color. Like, oh my God. <laughs> that makes me so excited and happy for you. You know, like, because she's a force. Like, she's she inspirational is. and she's amazing. And I got to tell you, she loves the audience. Yeah. Like, it is true that she loved that that's her favorite part. She said before in interviews that her favorite part of recording the show all those years was the audience. And when we did our, when she did um, the last stop of my book mm -hmm. tour, um, 
that was one of the things that I noticed. She was so excited because there was like a chat function and she could see people talking in the chat as we were talking. (laughs) And she just started grabbing things people were saying to like say or like to ask me about during our conversation. And that was, I think that was her favorite part. Like I do think that she enjoyed talking with me, but I think her favorite part was realizing that she would be able to interact with the audience in a certain capacity while we were talking. I love She's just that kind of person. So, so yes, bottom line, it's been amazing. (laughs) It's been wild and amazing. And I'm, I'm so thankful to her for deciding to publish my book and for doing um, the tour event with me and also just for inspiring me many, many years before she had any idea who I was. Yeah. Uh, And for taking that lovely photo of herself lounging, reading your book on her Instagram. I mean, so cash. She was just so cash. So cash. (laughs) And I was like, look at that. She read that book. Look at that book. And it was also so funny because, you know, when like usually if somebody posts something about my book or whatever and I like go look in the comments, most of the comments are from people who know. Right, right, right. Who, you know, have found it and are like, yeah, we love Ashley and stuff, which is so nice and so kind. Um, There was some of that, obviously, in the Oprah post, but it's Oprah, right? Right. So it doesn't matter what she posts. It's like when Beyonce posts and people are just like in her comments talking about things that are completely irrelevant to the post. (laughs) There were so many people being like, yeah, yeah, nice book. Where'd you get that quilt? (laughs) I love that quilt. Oh, what a beautiful quilt. I hope that's one of your favorite things. And I was like, I was like, yeah, yeah. It's a nice quilt. Let's humble ourselves. It's a nice quilt. It is a lovely quilt. I can't lie. It's a lovely quilt. She had so many lovely things going on in that photo, including your book. You know, (laughs) it was like one of many lovely things. Um, Yes. Speaking of lovely things to look at, we have to talk about the cover of your book. And the first thing I want to talk about is the color. Because there is an Instagram war happening currently in my life about whether your book is purple or blue. I have seen you in a tweet say something about how your book is the most beautiful blue ever. However, I also have eyes and my eyes tell me your book is purple. So I need to know what color your book is. You know, I'm looking at it right now. This is, this is blue. This is, I'm pretty sure (laughs) that this is blue. I think of it as blue. Um, But let's be honest. Like I, it's, it is giving blue with red undertones. Let, let's say that. This is it the is new dress. Red. Is the dress blue and black or gold and white? And is the book purple or blue? I am strongly team I purple. I, I know other readers who have spouses. One who thinks is blue. The other person thinks is purple. So I, I'm going to probably have to put an Instagram poll up and see what happens when this episode drops. But it is something that has made me very upset. Because ever since I saw your tweet, it never dawned on me that people thought your book was blue until that tweet. And now I'm like, well, if the author says it's blue, I guess I have to say it's blue. Like, who am I to go, you know, but I might have to go to the cover well, now artist. now I feel like I, yeah, like now I'm like, I think I have to ask Rachel. I think I have to ask my cover artist, like, Rachel, is this blue or purple? Like, it's important. People are dying. Yeah. Um, no. I, <laughs> I'm a... I'm going to do a poll too. Okay. I want to see, I'm going to do a poll. You do a poll. I want to see. 
if our audiences right. have different like color abilities. I don't. Know. I want. Yeah, I want to know. Yeah. The- now I want to know. I've never. This is so funny that you're saying this because nobody else has even asked me what I think if it's blue or purple. So this is taking me <laughs> off guard, but in the best possible. Way. This is my dream for the podcast is to ask at least one question that no one else has asked. So thank you for letting me know. I have check. We can be done. Um, but I also <laughs> want to talk about the snake. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so Oh, okay. There you go. I was just about to ask you about the snake. I know that you are the interviewer here, but yeah, no, I love really when people ask me, me questions. I keep wondering, did you see the snake immediately? No, I think I saw the snake a a little bit, a little while. But to be fair, I am truly one of the worst looking at cover people. Like (laughs) I will look at a cover and I I have a very like photographic memory. So like my books are organized by color because I can tell you exactly where every book is. If it's by color, if it's by author, good luck. I don't know who wrote it. Never heard of them. Right. But I, so when I look at books, I usually am just taking in sort of like the colors and the vibe. So like I can tell you what your cover looks like, but I don't always look at the details. Like one that comes to mind, of course, is um, Colson Whitehead's Nickel Boys. I don't know if you've read it, but I don't want to spoil, but the cover is very indicative. And I did not get that until after reading the book, staring at the book because I loved it so much. And then I think listening to Roxane Gay talk about it and being like, what the fuck? How am I so dumb that I missed that? So I'm like not a good cover person, but I did notice it before I ever heard you talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. Good. Good. Because most people that I've spoken to um, have been like, no, it took me like I had to see the cover a couple times to suddenly be like, wait a minute, is there a, is that a there's a snake? Was that important to you great, to have the snake on there? You know, I think when we initially brainstormed some things that could be possible for the cover, that I mentioned the snake iconography. Um, and said that that was something that, you know, I think it's important in the book. Like it's sort of like, um, a center point, a centerpiece of the book is the symbolism of the snake. And, um, I didn't know what was going to come back, you know, right, like right, I right. didn't have any real idea what the first mock-ups were going to look like. And when I saw it, I was like, yes, yes. That, that's it. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> thank you. I think I had one change um, in the cover, which is that originally the um, the parts that were that are green on the cover were going to be like a beige color. Oh. And I did not like the beige. I wanted another bright color. Um, and I suggested green. And then they put in the green and it was just gorgeous, like so beautiful. And I was like, that's it. Yeah. That's my book. That's what I want. Aside from the controversial purple-blue, the colors are really amazing. I really like the purple, Thank though you. some people think it's blue, so I don't like that as much. But I do like the colors. Are- <laughs> I'm more of a purple There's person. Be a war. Yeah, we're starting a whole feud. Like, this is the new, I don't know, this is the new thing. It, we've done it here today. Um, everyone, gird your loins. This is the pur- purple-blue war of 2021. <laughs> hot, hot, hot purple yeah. summer. Um, now I can't stop looking. I, well, I mean, look at it. You it's wrote it. Purple. It's incredible. You should be. If I ever wrote a book, I would stare at it all day for like six years and just like walk around and be like, "Hey, have you met me in my book that I wrote? It's beautiful. It's purple. Yay!" <laughs> okay, we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be right back. 
Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, we're back. I have one more question about the contents of the book, and then I want to talk a little bit more about your process. And it's sort of about marketing, to be honest with you. A lot of a lot of the way the book was marketed was about you and your relationship to your father. And I feel like, um, and him him being incarcerated and sort of you coming to some sort of coming of ageness around that. That's sort of how the book was pitched in my understanding. But when I read the book, it's a mm-hmm. lot to do about your relationship with your mother and your grandmother. And so the title, Somebody's Daughter, I had originally thought was about your dad, which it is. But to me, it also feels like it's almost more so about your mother and your grandmother. So I'm wondering your feelings about about that, if you have any, like sort of how the marketing is different from the content of the book. Well, you know, when the book was originally pitched, it included a lot more um, information and talking about my relationship with my dad specifically. Okay. 
And it was not until um, I was pretty deep into the writing process that I realized I was using my dad's story to not tell my mom. Mm. Um, because whenever I started talking about my dad's story, it was separate from me right. because our lives were entwined in that, you know, I come from him and I am affected by his incarceration. But in real time reality, our lives were not entwined right. at all. Um, so if I started writing too much about his world and about where he was um, or, you know, the time before I was born, um, his interactions with my mom and my family and things like that, um, it, it, it got too far away from me mm. and my reality. And I really wanted this book to center my experience and my reality. So as it continued, there was less of my dad who was not, you know, there. He was not my everyday. And there was more of the people who actually were my everyday right. um, in some capacity. So my mother, my grandmother, um, teachers who stepped up to fill in some of those parenting gaps um, friends, peers who honestly stepped in to fill in some of those parenting gaps. Right. Um, and I realized, you know, while I was writing this book, um, that the title was more apt than I realized when I came up with it, that it really was about the fact that I was raised by many people in different directions. Yeah. And there was a direction that I had to choose ultimately, and that had to be my home. So it's both about being somebody's daughter and about moving into myself beyond that role in all of my relationships. Right. Is there anything that's not in the book that you wish was? There are. There's one moment, yes that I now wish was in the book that I ended up writing about in a blog later on. Um, but now I, I do wish was in the book, which was um, an evening, a Christmas Eve, when my mom uh, was working at the county jail and she had this Christmas Eve off and we were able to be together that evening, me, my mom, um, my brother and my sister, even though my sister was like a baby baby. And um, Christmas Eve, uh, we, there was a knock at the door. We went to the door and there were these two police officers. And they had presents. And it was like, what? Whoa. <laughs> and there were these two gifts. And my mom was like, oh, my goodness, who is this? Oh, my gosh, gifts. You know, and the police officer told us, um, one of the police officers told us, this. these are from your dad. Mm. And we opened the gifts and we had done cr like a Christmas list that year, you know, and kids toys at that point are pretty cheap, right. and, you know, all this other stuff. Plus we were pretty aware we were poor. We didn't ask for things that were right, right, right. <laughs> like super big, but my brother wanted a certain kind of truck, um, toy truck. And I wanted um, my big gift for Christmas that I put on my list was that I wanted a, a Power Rangers um, fanny pack. <sighs> And I wanted it because for some reason on this fanny pack, the yellow ranger was in the middle instead of the red ranger. Mm. And I considered myself the yellow ranger. Okay. 
so I really wanted this swag so I could represent my set. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and so we opened our gifts and my brother's gift was the truck. And my gift was the fanny pack. Mm. And it was like, wow, how did our dad know that these were like our number one gifts? And he must have worked so hard to get these gifts to us on Christmas Eve. And I got to tell you, I was well into my teens, well into my teens, before it occurred to me that my mom Mm. had taken the gifts we wanted most and asked two officers who were on duty on Christmas Eve to come to our home and tell us that those gifts were from our dad. Mm. And... I believed in that longer than I believed in Santa Claus. Right. So, yeah, I I wish that I had found a good place for that particular story uh, in the book. Hmm. Okay. I don't have a graceful transition, so. It's okay. How do you write? Where are you? How many hours a day? How often do you listen to music? Are you not in the pandemic? Are you out in the world? This part is important. Don't forget this part. Are there snacks and beverages involved in your writing process? Rituals? Tell us about how you create your writing brilliance. Well, I don't write every day. Okay. I know a lot of people say that they write every day. I bet a lot of people do write every day. (laughs) I'm not that writer. Um, I don't write every day. Um, I I probably write a few times a week um, for an hour or so at a time. Um, sometimes longer if I'm up against a deadline or if I'm just really in my flow, I try to go for as long as I can. And I'm, you know, have the privilege to be able to do that most days because I work for myself and I work from home. Mm -hmm. Um, I tend to light a candle when I'm writing. I tend to write most uh, at night in like in the evening. Um, I love a snack when I'm writing Honestly, the snack I like the most when I'm writing is a bowl of dry cereal Ugh. that I will just What kind of cereal? What are your go-tos? Eat. Um, sugar smacks. Okay. <laughs> um, corn pops. Um, I also sometimes make like a trail mix, okay. but like I, I never buy bad trail mix cuz what I like in trail mix is so specific. Um, like I like dried cherries and dark chocolate chips. And sunflower seeds and pistachios. Okay. <laughs> um, that's like that. That's my treat. Okay. Um, I usually drink coffee when I'm writing. It. I don't think it helps, but I just do it because it, it feels like <laughs> the thing that I like to do. Right. Um, and honestly, if we're gonna be like super duper honest, yeah, I can be honest. Um, I smoke a lot of weed. Okay. When I write. You're not alone. Many people have told me that. Yeah. Yeah. I smoke a lot of weed when I write, like, especially if it's the evening and I'm trying to get in my flow. I've got my snacks. Um, I smoke weed. I listen to movie scores. Um, My favorites are Under the Tuscan Sun, um, Fast Color, The Wife, and Amelie. Oh. I listen to all of those a lot when when I write. I love this. You're one of the few writers who actually answers that question completely because a lot of people forget to do snacks or they forget like they forget <laughs> parts of it. I do have to know, is there a specific kind of candle that you light? 
Um, no. no. I'm always trying new scented okay. candles. Um, I know Target tired of me. They like we can't keep nothing and stop <laughs> messing around with her because I'll come and buy a bunch all at once. Because I don't like to. If I'm gonna sit down and write and I want to light my candle, um, the worst thing is realizing I don't have a candle. My candle's all burned out, right? And I don't have any more in the house. So when I go to Target, I buy hella candles. I love it. Because I'm lighting those months and, and we go in. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you, I mean, you're a, you're an internet person, like I mentioned before, a person who's on the internet. Oh, yeah. How do you preserve or tap into your creativity, especially being someone who's so publicly accessible? You know, one of the things, one of those emotions that I really had to learn about and allow myself to have um, was anger, mm. like I said. Um, and one of the things I learned about anger is that uh, anger is also the driver in a lot of cases of passion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I now what's really helpful to me is to pay attention to what's making me mad. Hmm. Um, pay attention to my anger because my anger is telling me what matters to me. Hmm. Um, what like sets me off, what I feel like, oh, I just feel like everybody should know this or I just feel like nobody understands this thing, or I feel like not enough people understand this thing, then I want to write about it. I want to talk about it. I want to make something that has to do with it. And I just go from there. I I let my passion lead me. I let my curiosity lead me because to be perfectly honest, it's just not enough Black women out here who have the privilege to do just that. Right. And I believe that the privilege and power that comes along with my ability to make those choices for myself is also responsibility. Mm. And my responsibility is to always make sure it's not just me because not only do I not want to close a door that's been opened for me, um, I also don't want to be alone in here. Right, right. (laughs) You know, so yeah. Do you have any feelings about sort of the ways that social media has changed in the last few years and evolved and I mean I'm sort of thinking of like this idea of cancel culture because that's like I don't know a top of mind every day in the last two years because someone's always crying about it and as someone who as I mentioned invented the internet I'm wondering what you think about this space I don't know I just feel like the internet like social media used to be sort of great sometimes and now it feels sort of sad sometimes so I'm wondering as someone who's kind of a pioneer in making it great what you feel about it now Well, I think if you look at my history on social media, you know, I've never really been one to participate in dragging somebody um, unless they are a really uh, well-known politician who's not doing their job. Right. Um, I'm not really one to drag people or try to bring people down. And that's not because I think it's wrong to drag people. It's just not my ministry. Okay. It's just not like, it's honestly just like... I can't even really, I can't gather the energy I would need to drag a person. Right, right, right. Honestly, it's like, I don't even know who you are and I don't care. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think cancel culture in and of itself um, is just a false thing. I don't think cancel culture is real. I think consequence culture is real. And I think when people don't like consequences, they very easily find a way to make themselves the victim in a situation so that they can avoid them. And I don't play that. Um, You know what you did. We saw what you did. We heard what you did. People responded to it. 
um, how they responded to it sometimes it's too much. Like it's too far. Like absolutely that happens. Right. You know, I'm a person who believes that in, if you dehumanize another person, you're dehumanizing yourself at the same time. Mm. You're lowering the value of your humanity. Um, and I'm not trying to be part of that. I don't, I don't want nothing to do with that, but do I think people should be called out? I think it's fine when they are. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. I think it's fine when they are. And I think the majority of them end up fine <laughs> uh, after they've been quote unquote canceled. Um, I've never, I, to this day, haven't heard of anybody being canceled and it turned and then them turning into a person who doesn't have a place to live, doesn't have food in their house or on their table, right. has lost their freedom or their rights uh, by any other measure. Um, yeah, that's not what happens. It's just sometimes you do something wrong and people are like, hey, this person did a wrong thing. Uh, I would like it if we don't fuck with them anymore. Right. And then other people are like, yeah, we're not going to fuck with them anymore. And you can't be like, how dare you guys not fuck with me? Like, right. <laughs> like who? No, who cares? So it's it's hard because on the one hand, I do feel like it used to be more fun yeah. to be on social media. And then I used to have a lot more fun on social media. And I feel like I can pinpoint when that started to change and when I realized it was just probably going to be this way forever. It's not going back to how it used to be. Like, yeah, it's changed, um, but people change. And social media is only as redeemable as we are. We are the ones who make it. We are the ones who run it. And, you know, I, I think there are a lot of people on the internet still trying to figure out their anchor mm-hmm. and their emotions. Mm-hmm. And they're still trying to figure out what it means to them to be angry, what it means to hold someone else accountable, what it like, how to consider whether or not it's their place to right. hold someone else accountable. Like people are just figuring those things out. And the internet is like the wild, wild west of figuring that shit out. Right. So I think you have to go into it now with that mindset that like this kind of is the wild, wild west. Right. And people are going to do and say wild things. And I can't control that, but I can control my reaction to it. Right. That's all I've got. And I, whenever I react, I just want to react like me. Right. That's it. Right. What was the moment that you can pinpoint where things started to change? Summer of 2014. Okay. Interesting. Summer of 2014. Interesting. Ferguson. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. This is also a very important question. What is a word that you can never spell correctly on the first try? persuasion. Ooh, you knew that right away. I love it. I cannot yeah. spell that word. Yeah. It, it haunts me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> persuasion and restaurant. restaurant. Can't, can't do it. Someone else said restaurant once. I can't remember who, but I'm pretty sure restaurant's been on the list before. I should make an actual list of all the words and just have it live somewhere because it gives me confidence as someone who is a terrible speller when people that I think are smart and admirable, <laughs> I'm like, oh, you can't spell restaurant. Boom. Got ya. <laughs> I think every viral tweet I've ever had has a typo. A, a thousand ever percent. Since. So like, Predictive so text is especially know. aggressive on Twitter. It's like, can you relax? Absolutely. Can you relax? I, yeah. I typed what I meant. Why are you changing this? Yeah. Why'd you add an S? Yeah. There wasn't supposed to be an S. Exactly. Oh my God. Autocorrect. Don't care. <laughs> Wait, I want to know. So you hosted the Lovecraft Country supplementary podcast show for HBO. I don't know if I said that right, but is there any other show you would ever want to dissect or talk about on a podcast? Yeah. The nanny. Oh my God. You and Saeed. 
yeah, that's my that would be a dream situation. Oh would be me and Saeed getting to chat about the nanny um, and about our analysis of it, interpretations of it, maybe getting to like interview some of the people who were on the show or who wrote on the show or designed the sets or the stylist oh, yes. for Fran. Can you imagine? Yeah. Yes. I would love to talk. Who do we have to talk to to make that happen? Because it feels like it should be happening. She's ha- the show's let, having let a research. Let me talk to Yeah, people. you need Let's to go talk to happening. it. Let's make this happen. <laughs> um, I just have a few more questions for you. Yeah. For people who love somebody's daughter, what are some other books that you might recommend to them that are in conversation with, with what you've done? Um, I would absolutely recommend uh, Clint Smith's book, How the Word is Passed. Um, because not just because I have a bonus conversation with him on the audio, which is fantastic, but also because I felt like the way his book talks about the way we see history, the way we see people in history, um, also the way it talks about the incarceration system in America, um, is very relevant Mm -hmm. to what's going on in my book. I would also encourage people to read, um, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. I, uh, that was the book that made me um, realize that I could write about my child self um, as an adult and that I could do it in a way that was beautiful and, and timely. Um, I would also encourage people to read The Glass Castle, mm. um, which is a book I read right before I started writing my book because we had to read that book for uh, the class I was in. Mm. And it was another book that talked about childhood um, situations and familial relationships that deeply, deeply made me um, feel like my book might be a possibility one day. So yeah, I think all those books are in conversation with me. Oh, and one more. Go ahead. Uh, Talhead by Alicia Arian. Okay. Um, that book is about a young Arab woman uh, with a developing body, with extremely tough familial relationships, um, who is both taken advantage of and finds her voice in order to speak up for herself. It's it's an amazing, amazing but heart wrenching book. Okay, I'm adding it to my list. Um, you don't know this, but today's episode of the Stacks, we're recording this on June 16th, is Clint Smith. And you're going to be next week. So you guys are going back to back. And I told him that. And he's like, everything oh we're doing gosh. this cycle is together because our books came out on the same day. And we did this Libro FM or this audiobook conversation. And yes. it just makes me very happy because I also read your books, I think, simultaneously because I listened to yours and I read his um, off the page. Mm-hmm. And it was like around the same time. So you saying that also makes me feel like, yeah, those books really do fit together. And you wouldn't think it, but they do sort of way. Right. And you both made He's it on the New York Times person. bestseller list. We did. He's a fantastic person. That's my friend. Yeah. You know, that's my friend. The day we found out we were both on the bestseller list, he FaceTimed me and we were able to like quickly congratulate each other and, and like, you know, scream for each <laughs> other and be excited for each other. And, and then he had to go give his kids a bath. Yeah. But <laughs> it was really fantastic. I, I just think he's a phenomenal person, a brilliant mind. Um, and honestly, I think he's one of the most important writers that we have writing today. I, I agree with all of that. I 
I'm quite taken with him. I think he's fantastic. I also think you're fantastic. So I, I love that you both love Thank each you. other. There's nothing makes me more excited when two people that I think are great are friends and love each other because it feels like that's validating of their work. Because some people make great work but have no friends because they're jerks. You know, so like when two people yep. who are lovely are friends, I'm like, this is great because they're smart and they're talented and they must be nice people because they like each other. So <laughs> makes me very happy. Um, what is the what is the thing that your younger self, younger Ashley, would tell Ashley now? Like, what do you think she would think of you? I think the thing I would tell my younger self, the thing I do tell my younger self all the time, is that it's okay now. We're okay. And it might not feel like it's okay all the time because you are not used to things being okay. Hmm. But I'm a big person now. I'm a grown up and I will take care of you. I will take care of you for the rest of our life. And I mean it. And you can count on me. And what does she say back? In my mom. <laughs> she says, finally. Mm. Finally. This is my last question for you. If you could have one person dead or alive read somebody's daughter, who would you want it to be? Dr. Maya Angelou. Mm, beautiful. Beautiful. All right, everybody, you can get Ashley's New York Times best-selling debut book, her memoir, Somebody's Daughter, anywhere you get books. As I mentioned, I listened to the audio. It's fantastic. Ashley reads it. I also did read some of it off the page because I like to get a vibe for how that feels. You're probably going to want to get the physical book so you can weigh in, whether it's purple or blue. This was just such a treat. Ashley, thank you so, so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for having me. I've had such a good time. Me too. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you for listening and thank you to Ashley for being my guest. I'd also like to thank Kat Keeney for coordinating this interview. Our June book club pick is The Undying, a meditation on modern illness by Ann Boyer. We will discuss the book on Wednesday, June 30th with Michael Denzel Smith. Please make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.